Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Trump's turn. Lawyers for the former president begin his impeachment defense. Streaming success, Disney puts the soul into the House of Mouse. And freezing fundamentals, the UK economy's worst year since the great frost of 1709. It's Friday, let's make a move. First move and the end of a truly jam-packed week. Donald Trump's defense begins making their case. All the details on that coming up. As I mentioned, the Lunar New Year has also arrived in China, of course, too. And uh, we will be uh, talking about the year of the ox. And from the ox to the chocolate box, it's Valentine's Day on Sunday. Investors upbeat on love in the time of lockdown, sending shares of online networking and, yes, dating site Bumble soaring on its debut Thursday, a leap, look at that, of 63.5% and up again pre-market today too. Love is in the air generally for recent IPOs. Airbnb is up 49% since its debut in December. Food delivery site DoorDash, which went public in December too, up almost 50% this year so far. Valentine roses are red. So unfortunately, our US futures, Wall Street, consolidating, as you can see, after hitting fresh records Thursday. Europe, meanwhile, mixed. The UK posting some eye-wateringly bad GDP numbers, but reasons for optimism in there too. And we'll take you through the numbers very shortly as well. Investors can definitely feel the love tonight slash today for Disney. I've mentioned it up more than 1% pre-market after another quarter of enchanting, enchanted subscriber growth for streaming service Disney Plus, helping offset whopping losses in COVID hit parts of the business like parks and cruises. We will bring you up to speed on all of that for now. The second impeachment trial of Donald Trump is proving far speedier than the first. And for that, we'll turn to our drivers. We begin in D.C. at the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And it's now over to the defense. Here's Lauren Fox with a full roundup. Former President Donald Trump's defense team will have their turn today to explain why they believe he is not responsible for the deadly insurrection at the Capitol. And despite having 16 hours over the next two days to present their case, Trump's lawyers could make their defense as short as three hours. That's according to a source close to the former president's legal team. There's no reason for us to be out there a long time. As I said from the start of this thing, this trial never should have happened. They will use their time attempting to show no connection between Trump and the January 6th insurrection. And video examples they say demonstrate Democratic leaders using what they call similar language to the former president. 
One possible clip is of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer speaking outside the Supreme Court last March, the source close to Trump's team says. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. The argument, despite no violence happening after Schumer's speech, like it did following Trump's rally on January 6th. The former president's lawyers also meeting with three Republican senators Thursday night. Even with their roles as jurors, Texas Senator Ted Cruz says they discuss Trump's defense strategy. I urge the, the, the Trump defense lawyers is focus on the point I just made, which is that the legal standard in, in all 16 hours of the House manager's presentation, they spent only about 15 minutes on the legal standard for incitement. And, and they created this brand new standard that's found in no criminal code. One Democrat calling the efforts by the group of GOP senators desperate. They're worried and they should be. In these two days, the House managers have put together a powerful case against this president. In their final arguments, the House impeachment managers urging senators to hold Trump accountable. We humbly, humbly ask you to convict President Trump for the crime for which he is overwhelmingly guilty of. If we let it go unanswered, who's to say it won't happen again? Focusing on how many rioters they say were following the former president's direction that day. Donald Trump had sent them there. They truly believed that the whole intrusion was at the president's orders. And we know that because they said so. I thought I was following my president. I thought I was following what we were called to do. Their presentation, including a timeline, showing how Trump embraced violence even before becoming president, and examples of how Trump showed no remorse after the attack. My speech and my words and my final paragraph, my final sentence, and everybody to the T thought it was totally appropriate. He knew the people that died. And his message to all of us was that his conduct was totally appropriate. The House prosecutors sending this warning, saying an acquittal for Trump is a dangerous risk. President Trump declared his conduct totally appropriate. So if he gets back into office and it happens again, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. As his predecessor's impeachment trial continues there, President Biden announcing the U.S. will have enough COVID-19 vaccines for 300 million people by the end of July. We're also able to move up the delivery dates with an additional 200 million vaccines to the end of July, faster than we expected. That means we're now on track to have enough supply for 300 million Americans by the end of July. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, the government clearly ramping up um, access to supplies for U.S. citizens and, and others in this country, assuming we can get the logistics right. Talk us through it. Right, exactly. So let's talk through these numbers a little bit, Julia. So what we're hearing is that, as you said, by the end of July, 
300 million doses, uh, or I'm sorry, 600 million doses. So 600 million doses delivered by the end of July. Half of that will be Moderna. Half of that will be Pfizer. That's enough to vaccinate 300 million people. The U.S. population is more like 330 million people. But of course, this vaccine not authorized for anyone. These vaccines not authorized for anyone under the age of 16. Now, this doesn't take into account the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which has not been authorized, but it is anticipated that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration will authorize it. So chugging along, can't say this effort is speeding along. It is chugging along. The hope is that every American who wants one will be able to get one by the end of July. Julia? Yeah, and your point there about people actually wanting one is uh, another important fact here, which we need to consider. Mm -hmm, I want to get your wisdom because I got a lot of correspondence yesterday on what we were talking about, comments from a German Chancellor Angela Merkel saying we have to compare and be concerned about variants perhaps outweighing the good that vaccines are doing. And I just wanted to get your context on this on the impact of variants on vaccine efficacy and what the vaccine makers are saying to us, where their big concerns are. Right. So there are concerns about some of these variants, not all of them, but there are concerns that some of these variants might be able to some extent out with the vaccines. Let's talk about the UK variant first, because that seems to be the one that is the most widespread, according to the numbers that we have. The vaccine does seem to work well against that UK variant, and that is definitely good news. However, the vaccine does not seem to work as well against the variants that were first spotted in South Africa and Brazil. So we don't know for sure, but what it appears to be is the vaccine has some efficacy, but it is not going to be 95% effective. That's what Pfizer and Moderna are right now. So they're not going to be that effective against the South African or Brazil variants, which is why Pfizer and Moderna are working on boosters. But what I want to give here, Julia, is the bottom line. And this is so important. It is still a very good idea to get vaccinated. If you can get vaccinated, do. And here's why. First of all, most of the coronavirus that's out there is not the South African variant. It is not the Brazil variant. Second of all, even if those variants do start to pick up speed and become dominant, in certain parts of the world, it appears that the vaccine will still have some effect against those variants. The third reason why you still want to get a vaccine is that the more the more people who are vaccinated, the fewer chances this virus has to spread and mutate. Viruses mutate as they spread. If we can stop the spread, you sort of stop mutations in their tracks. You won't get new mutations as much because it's not spreading as much. So for all those reasons, don't worry about the details. Get the vaccine if you can. And therein lies the key. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. I I thought it very important for you to emphasize this point once again. Thank you. All right, so we'll take a look at global vaccination efforts later on in the show with the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce. Now, let's move on. Uh, There's no magic wand for the pandemic impact on Disney's movie and theme parks. Quarterly profit at the House of Mouse dropping some 99% from a year ago. Yet, the jewel in the crown, the Disney Plus streaming service added more than 21 million subscribers in the quarter, now hitting 
nearly 95 million people. Frank Spilota joins us now. Frank, great to have you on the show with us. I think Disney would rather talk to us uh, on here is talk about the streaming part of the business and we shall oblige them here. They've basically hit their four year, their original four year target in just 14 months. Yeah, the difference between how we talk about Disney right now is really important to understanding what Disney is evolving into. So for people who don't know, Disney started in 1923. It's a traditional movie studio that became this media conglomerate. And now Wall Street is treating it and talking about it as a tech company. Look at the numbers yesterday. The the profits were way down, 99%. They went from 2.1 billion last year to about $30 million for the last quarter. That is a huge drop. If that happened to any other company, the the stock price would be on fire. But instead, Disney stock is pretty good. It's actually pretty solid. And that's all because of Disney Plus. So we are seeing the transition of Disney as a company from a media conglomerate, from a, a movie studio, you know, the place where you go see Mickey Mouse, to a tech company. They're treating it like a Silicon Valley tech company in terms of its users and how its streaming is uh, getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, I mean, this is the key to your point. They're in an evolution to the what is going to become and what is a different Disney of the future where this streaming is such a pivotal part. But we can't escape the fact that they do have monster businesses in theme parks, in the cruise line business in particular, too. And all of those things impacted. And as um, the CEO, the current CEO, Bob Chapek, said, it's going to be determined. The recovery of these are going to be determined by the speed upon which we can get people vaccinated and get people back to life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he talked a little bit about it, but it's really interesting to see how Wall Street reacts to Disney now. It's kind of like going to Walt Disney World and saying, hey, Tomorrowland's on fire and so is, uh, you know, Adventureland. And then the Wall Street goes, but you see Cinderella's castle looks great, beautiful. Stock price goes up. So, you know, Bob Chapek really is trying to tell investors, just hold the line. Just, just take some, like, it's going to be a couple more months of this getting hammered, a couple more quarters potentially, but we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. And he was even kind of talking about potentially in 2022, we might get back to a normal way of life in terms of the parks, not having to wear masks, not having to do social distancing. Obviously, that's a big, big if. And he's not saying that's definitely going to happen. But he's trying to keep people focused on the future that the business itself will get much better and that streaming will just continue to grow. So, you know, there's there's hope ahead for Disney, but we'll see if it actually gets there. But that's the case for really everything right now. Yeah, and the sparkly part of the business is soon to be further monetized with price rises too. at the price of Disney Plus in the US going up, of course, to $7.99 per month on March 26th. So opportunity continues. Frank, great to have your insights on that. Frank Pelota there. Thank you. All right, 2020 was a bad year for most, but for the UK economy, it was the worst year in centuries. UK UK GDP shrank 9.9% 9.9% in 2020. That's the biggest slump since the great frost of 1709. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, this is not an amusing story, but I can barely get my words out this morning. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Take it away, please, and give us the details. <laughs> So we got the uh, quarterly GDP from uh, the last quarter and it was actually better than expected despite, as you said, for the whole year, the UK economy contracted by nearly 10%. 
That is the worst annual contraction for hundreds of years. Now, the big question, of course, because that's hardly surprising given the pandemic and all the lockdowns, where does it go from here? Now, this quarter isn't expected to go particularly well given the implementation and continuation of national lockdowns here in the UK. But the Bank of England does hope or predict some sort of bounce back in the second half. In fact, the chief economist Andy Haldane was writing the Daily Mail newspaper just today saying that the UK economy is like a coiled spring and and is the vaccine rollout he expects that will release this spring. He predicts lots of pent up appetite for spending from households. So when those restrictions ease, it'll be spend, spend, spend. But to that push, Julia, I would add a pull. And that is when restrictions do eventually ease here in the UK, you can expect that furlough scheme to end. And what could that mean? It could mean a surge in unemployment. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the huge challenges, isn't it? And if only COVID as well were the only challenge that the the nation's dealing with here, of course, the fallout from Brexit, particularly on the services part of the economy, which was not captured despite all the talk that we had over agreeing a trade deal with the EU. What more can you tell us perhaps about the City of London, the financial sector specifically? Any progress Absolutely no progress whatsoever, Julia. In fact, uh, some negative news this week. Last month, Amsterdam overtook London as the centre for equity trading. Plenty of trades have been shifting out of the UK onto the continent. That is no surprise. These talks on equivalents don't appear to be going anywhere at all. The Bank of England governor, uh, Andrew Bailey, this week said that the EU's demands for the UK to adhere to all of their regulations are, and I quote, unrealistic. And he he pointed out that actually what the EU is demanding here is out of line with what they have in terms of equivalence relationships with other countries like the US, like Canada, like Hong Kong. And that's quite surprising given the UK just to a few weeks ago was considered equivalent by the EU. Now, those I speak to in the city of London aren't surprised that these talks haven't gone anywhere. And frankly, financial firms in the UK have been prepared for this scenario now for years since really the referendum began. Some staff have already moved to the continent and lots of people point out that while trades are being booked in Europe, perhaps they're being booked in places like Amsterdam, it's hard to tell, of course, where the talent behind many of those trades actually are. And many of them could, of course, still be here in the city of London. Julia. Anna, great job. Thank you so much for your insights, as always. Anna Stewart there from London. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories. Making headlines around the world, the Kremlin's top critic is demanding the judge in his latest case be replaced because he's not impartial. Alexei Navalny appeared in a Moscow courtroom again today. He's accused of defaming a World War II veteran, a charge he says is politically motivated. Last week, Navalny was sentenced to nearly three years in jail for parole violations. The United States, the United Nations, my apologies, says there's growing evidence that Myanmar's security forces have used live ammunition and lethal force against protesters calling for the return of civilian rule. It also says more than 350 people have been arrested since the military coup on February 1st. Protesters turned out for the seventh straight day on Friday. The Australian Tennis Open will have a lot of empty seats over the weekend. Fans are prohibited from attending the tournament in Melbourne for five days as the state of Victoria goes into lockdown. Authorities are trying to slow down an outbreak of a highly contagious coronavirus strain. Still to come here on First Move is $9.2 trillion, the price of vaccine nationalism. 
We'll be discussing and can streaming startup Mundundo crack the African market that has eluded Spotify and Apple. We'll speak to the CEO that's trying. Stay with us. That's all next. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where U.S. stocks are set to pull back from records in early trade. It's the year of the ox in China. It's another week of the bull on Wall Street. All major averages up 1% or more the past five sessions on stimulus hopes, strong earnings and quickening vaccine rollout. Small caps are the best gainers, those domestically focused stocks. But it's not that simple. Vaccine nationalism could cost the world over $9 trillion in lost GDP, according to the International Chambers of Commerce. It says almost half that burden could fall on advanced economies and that the ethics and the economics align in favour of a fair distribution of doses. To discuss this, joining us now, John W.H. Denton. He's Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce. John, Great to have you with us. Such an important discussion. The moment I saw your research, my eyes lit up and I had to have this conversation with you. It it makes really real sense to me. This is not an act of generosity. It's help me to help you and vice versa all around the world. Spot on, Julia. And look, thank you very much for having me on the show and and happy Chinese New Year to everyone as well. Let's hope it's a happier one. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the reason we got involved with this is that the ICC, we're, we represent 45 million companies in every country of the, around the globe. And many of those countries are obviously least developed, developing middle income economies. And that's where lots and lots of businesses are. And they have been devastated by the impact of COVID-19. So we have had as a mission to do whatever we could to try and bring an end to this pandemic and ensure that people can get their lives and livelihoods back together. The big challenge we've seen from the very beginning was the risk that as vaccines started to be developed, we would get the same problem with vaccine distribution as we got with protective uh, equipment uh, distribution and ventilators in the early days. And we warned governments that they needed to think through the distribution logistics because the view we had, the hypothesis we had, was that no one is safe until everyone is safe. All economies are interconnected. And we needed to, if you're going to fix your own economy, you can only do that in the context of fixing all the economies. So that was our hypothesis. Uh, We were given affirmations and uh, told by governments, yes, we fully understand this. And then we were actually part of creating this group called COVAX, which pulls together developing countries and developed countries to ensure there will be equitable distribution and then getting funding. And then we discovered there was no funding or limited funding. Mm -hmm. And then we worked out, then we saw what was happening was we're going back to exactly the same game plan that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, vaccine nationalism started to take place. And so we thought it was absolutely essential to be crystal clear that this is actually an economic issue. And this is not an economic issue that's visited upon developing economies alone, but actually hits developed economies. And that's why we put together this study, which actually proved our hypothesis that almost 50% of the burden, $4.5 trillion of the impact will be felt by developed economies. And frankly, in the developed economies, economies, again, by working men and women, small businesses, people in Main Street, not in Wall Street, that's where the damage will be done. So we're as you say, the economics and the ethics align and it's time to get this done. And there's more because there's more to be done as well. 
I mean, we have to explain this as well. In your more probable scenario, you say the cost of the blow here could be between $1.8 trillion and $3.8 trillion. But the assumption that you're making here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that developing countries do manage to vaccinate half their populations by the end of this year. And that's no small feat, quite frankly, John. But again, to your point, again, around half of the cost is borne by developed economies. And it all comes down to trade links. Supply chains are global. So if you don't fix problems in countries that you import goods from, it's going to back up and have problems for the nations that import those goods. Yeah, let's just unpack that for, for a little bit. Uh, in terms of our more optimistic scenarios, frankly, they were scenarios and they're unlikely to be met. And that's that's because the actual speed of distribution of vaccines, even in developed countries, and you would have seen in Europe and in the US, has been less than optimal. Uh, and actually the, the actual access to vaccinations in developing countries is actually pretty min- minuscule. Uh, what you've seen at the moment is about 2.5 million do- doses. Two million of those are actually in middle, in, in, in economies coming out of India. Two million come from, out, from India. And there's only about, uh, this is a number which will be quite shocking, less than 100 which have been available right now in, in the sub-Saharan Africa, and that's in Guinea. I mean, so the actual speed of distribution is less than our optimistic scenario, which is why we're moving towards our more pessimistic scenario of 9.2. Right. And as you say, unpacking the supply links is actually critical here. This is the bit that's been ignored or for, uh, people haven't understood, that if you are an auto worker, in Detroit, putting together a car, all the parts and parts are not made in the US. Parts of the parts actually have to come from other economies. So for example, tires, the rubber for the tires comes from Thailand. What's happened is that the Thai uh, rubber plantations have actually been devastated because the workers can't go to them because of lockdowns. And so you've got this kind of absolute fracturing of that supply chain emerging and a slowdown there in production. So then you can't sell, you can't make and you can't sell. So that's how that intermediation operates. And what people often forget is that that is the common denominator of almost every supply chain that operates globally. They all rely on someone else doing something else. It is all interconnected. We are all joined up. A solution to this economically is actually a joined up solution. A solution to the pandemic must be joined up uh, in order to get it done. I mean, the perfect illustration we've been talking about it on the show is what we've been calling chip again. We're hearing from some of the biggest car makers in the world that they're having to slow production because they simply can't get the chip. So it's we're seeing it already in, in, in practice here. I mean, that's about changing in demand and obviously demand use for other products as a result of the pandemic. But it plays into what you're saying here. John, we've also heard yeah. from the Serum Institute of India, which illustrates your point about India and he, the CEO there, is also incredibly frustrated about his inability to get vaccines that he's got in storage out to parts of the world. What's the answer, John? Well, there's a combination of things. First of all, uh, our job is not to uh, describe a problem. It's actually to make certain people right. aware of the full ramifications of the existing uh, trajectory we're on and seek to arrest that and actually come up with other solutions. First of all, the first thing is that the vaccine was never going to be a silver bullet. We've got a classic supply-demand problem. This happens with any major innovation. But, you know, we know this is actually kind of like the biggest logistical exercise in living history, if not in the history of the world. So getting it right, getting it in balance will take some time, which means we've got to ensure that we increase supply at the same time as we manage demand. 
and increasing supply. We, we need to in, in create the environment where more vaccines come online and get permitted, that we actually get more production happening, etc. cetera. Uh, but at the same time, in terms of managing demand, we've got to keep on doing things like testing. We've also got to ensure that we can use tools that can help manage people back into the economy safely. While the uh, vaccine is starting to uh, unpack itself across the globe or across the country, because not everyone's getting it at the same time, people shouldn't be sitting at home for three months or four months waiting for a vaccine. They should be able and should have tools available to them to actually enable them to get back out there, which is why testing remains important. Sadly, we're seeing testing diminishing in, in focus by in a number of governments. We've seen in the US, for example, a drop from 2 million to 1.8. You know, we don't want that to be a trend. And also now we've, for example, the ICC, again, we create, we create solutions. We actually believe that if you can create a, um, an environment where people have confidence to move around because they know the status of people in terms of their COVID-19 status, then there's an ability to travel across borders, travel back to work. We're actually running a pilot project at the moment in the town of Girona, which is a pilot to see if we can get a whole economy back operating using ICC AOK Pass, which is a digital attestation, uh, which actually records your COVID-19 status. We'll have a football uh, uh, football uh, ma match operating. We'll have weddings. We'll have restaurants. And we need to do these things simultaneously because we've got to increase supply and manage demand and do it safely. Vaccines were never going to be a silver bullet. We're always going to need to moderate our way through here. And we need to use the other tools that are available, testing and tools like ICCAOK Pass, to ensure that we can actually manage the two. But the other thing that governments have got to recognise is something that I think business is so good at making this point. You, fixing your own problem can only be sustainable if you work to fix the whole problem. Yeah. And that's something that we're driven by. We have to work together. John, fantastic to have yeah. you on the show. Thank you so much. John W.H. Denton, Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce with some wise words. Thank you, sir. We're back after this with The Market Open. Welcome back to First Move. Wall Street up and running on the last trading day of the week ahead of the long President's Day holiday weekend. And we've got a softer open, a bit of consolidation here. But markets, of course, still not far from all-time highs as stocks pull back as U.S. 30-year bond yields head towards the psychologically sensitive 2% level. Higher bond yields, of course, offer better return and therefore on a relative basis can make stocks look slightly less attractive. Bitcoin. Meanwhile, softer but still near record highs too. A crucial week for crypto coming to an end on news that major financial players like MasterCard are ready to support the use of alternative currencies. And from Bitcoin to roads and bridges, President Biden yesterday pitching a massive new infrastructure spending proposal to senators. This on top of an almost $2 trillion emergency aid bill now working its way through Congress. There's a tie here, of course. More fiscal spending is, of course, needed. But the result is more borrowing and higher borrowing costs. Now, President Biden meets today with airline executives for the first time since taking office. That, according to CNN sources, the major U.S. carriers are expected to push back on proposals for a COVID-19 testing requirement for domestic passengers. Pete Montine joins us with more. Pete, I have to say, as a domestic passenger, I would be happy with the idea of people having tests just for trust and security purposes. But of course, for the airlines, it might mean a further suppression of already meagre demand for plane tickets. 
Yeah, and that's the rub here, Julie. You know, this is the first such meeting that airlines have had with this new White House, and they have pushed back vehemently against the idea of expanding travel testing requirements to include domestic travel. Remember that the CDC began requiring last month that international travelers coming into the United States show proof of a negative coronavirus test to their airline at the start of their trip. You know, industry group after industry group, airline after airline, has come out against expanding that idea. In fact, Delta CEO at said to CNN just this week that it's a horrible idea, that it's a logistical nightmare, and that by discouraging people from travel, it would set airline recovery back by another year. What's so interesting, though, is that this was really elevated by Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who said that the White House is talking with the CDC about this and that any decision would be guided by data, he says. So this is something certain to come up in this meeting with the White House. We will see if it's the death knell for this idea. Yeah, and we shall watch this space. What about the inkling talk of further support, perhaps another multi-billion dollar handout to these airlines in this latest financial aid package that's being discussed, Pete? What What do you know and what are you hearing about that? We will have to see if there's appetite for it, Julie. You know, airlines want another $14 billion from the federal government. That would be the third round of stimulus funding for the airline industry. And they're already really laying the groundwork for the need for this. American Airlines says it'll furlough 13,000 people come the 1st of April. Uh, United Airlines, 14,000 people. Remember, these were all people brought back from furloughs that started October 1st. So these are real people on the line, the airlines say, and they need this money. This would keep them out of the breadline and on the job until next, I'm sorry, this October, until October 2021. So it's something really important for a lot of people and really important for the airlines. Yeah, incredibly important. But there are so many other sectors where people are struggling. Um, We shall see. Pete Montine, great to have you with us. Thank you. Live from Washington there. All right. Coming up after the break, transforming Africa's music scene one track at a time. The co-founder of Mundundo, who's taking on the likes of Spotify and Apple Music, joins us next. Welcome back to First Move. An unusual partnership is boosting the music industry in Africa. Danish expat Martin Nilsson and a Kenyan rapper called Frasher are behind a web-based music service called Mundundo, which means rhythm in Swahili. Users can download or stream tracks from 80,000 artists for free. There is advertising, though, but the revenues are split 50-50 between the artists and the platform itself. And I'm pleased to say Martin Nilsson joins us now from Nairobi, Kenya. Martin, fantastic to have you on the show. You clearly spotted a gap in the market. It's Spotify-esque, but I also see other aspects. SoundCloud, odes of that too. So talk me through the concept. Well, yeah, thank you so much for having me this, uh, this morning. Um, the concept is, is, is rather, rather simple. We are, we are basically uh, seeing a continent where the, the music industry is currently exploding. And, and as you're saying correctly, um, we've sort of seen a gap in, in fitting in a, a music service that is achieving uh, quite similarly to what um, Spotify achieved in the Western world, um, sort of getting people into uh, a music and legitimate uh, music service um, and thereby benefiting the, the rights owners. Which I love. I mean, whose music are you playing here? Uh, well, so we find that um, the African continent and as a whole, as, as well as many also other places in the world, are, are highly consuming uh, their own music. 
So 80% of all the, the catalog that we see it being consumed in Africa is African music, uh, both sort of local, regional, but also a hyper-local uh, catalog. Um, and so that's, that's why we have um, direct uh, agreements with, we have more than 80,000 artists across the continent. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I was looking at it. Obviously, there's no subscription. The downloads are free, but you've got these five to 10 second adverts before each song and, and people are happy with that. I, I saw a comment that you made and said legal competitors account for just 7% of all downloads. W- where are the rest coming from here? And, and how does this work yeah, as a result we, of those numbers? Yeah, yeah. No, we are having a situation uh, that is very similar to what we saw 10, 15 uh, years ago in the Western world. Um, so it's kind of very, you can kind of mirror the same, the same market uh, at the moment. But, but what is sort of happening is that services like ourselves have come in and are providing a really viable uh, solution for the audience. Um, and they're seeing the same trend, uh, just a little bit delayed as what we saw in the Western world, where basically uh, users are moving into, uh, and customers are moving into to legal services like our own. Um, and that uh, obviously uh, creates a, a massive foundation uh, for the music industry in Africa as well. Yeah, so it's just the ease upon which you can get access to this music that saves the time. They don't need to download it by other means. Perhaps you can come to a service like this and, um, exactly. and it works. Exactly. <laughs> I can understand that. We, we all want to make things easier for ourselves. How many users have you got and what kind of growth are you seeing? Well, so uh, our platform right now has uh, 7 million users um, across, the, across the continent. Um, that's our, our latest numbers from December. Um, we are planning to grow that to 18 million by, by June 2022. So we are currently seeing a very rapid uh, growth in, in user numbers. And, and our catalog is also uh, expanding rapidly as, as more and more artists are, are seeing this as an opportunity to actually generate uh, revenue from their catalog. How long is it going to take you to be profitable? And so right now, I think similarly to uh, the music services we are, we are seeing in, across the world, it, it's very much about growth. And right. so our focus is, is 100% to, to, to grow across the continent, increase that uh, footprint that we have, um, and growth costs uh, cost money. Uh, so at the moment, our focus is, is very much on that. Um, and uh, in that journey, we are, we are still generating an income for the artists, um, I- even though the business itself is not, is not turned profitable yet. And we are still uh, positively contributing to, to many artists that uh, uh, prior to the services like ourselves didn't actually have an income of, of uh, distributing music. Yeah, and I love that about this. You're also contributing to the ecosystem of startups in Africa. And I know you're, you're based in, um, in Nairobi specifically, but I can tell by your accent that you are clearly and were born in Denmark. And, um, and that's where your accent's from. Yeah. Why, why did you decide to move to the continent of Africa? What was it that attracted you? How does it compare in terms of hiring talent and the people that are working around you? Because I think this is another important aspect for our viewers to understand the opportunity there. Of course, um, we, we are seeing an, a continent that is very rapidly uh, growing. And, and the main sort of driver that also uh, really caught my attention is that people are getting, or a massive amount of people are getting phones in their hands. Uh, so we have more than half a billion uh, internet-connected uh, smartphones on the continent now. And, and that transformation in, in infrastructure and people having access uh, basically uh, massively increases the market opportunity uh, across the continent. 
Um, and we are seeing that uh, both from a, from a talent perspective, uh, people are growing with that development. Um, so we are, we are really we are really seeing a, a continent that is really optimistic about the development that's taking place. Uh, but I think more importantly, we are finding that this transformation uh, creates a real market opportunity that uh, also creates um, value for investors. And um, because a business like ourselves that are heavily focusing on growth, we are depending on that uh, investors are seeing the same potential on the continent that, that we are. Um, and uh, we are really seeing that uh, the, 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 what has in the past maybe been more of a forecast uh, for what would happen uh, on, the con on the African continent is now an actual reality. Um, and that's something that the investors are also realizing, um, which is super, super exciting to be a part of. It sounds incredibly exciting and it's great to have you on the show and well handled there because I believe all the lights went off. So I'm glad I'm glad that we still... just went off, but um, I think we managed. I hope you can still see me. Yes, I can. Good job. You are, you are behaving like a pro there. Great to have you with us <laughs> and we'll speak to you again soon. Martin Nilsson there, the CEO of Mundundo. Thank you and great to have you with us. All right, coming up, the BBC goes black in China. The latest tip for tat between Beijing and London, next. Welcome back to First Move. BBC going dark in China. Beijing blocking BBC World News in an apparent retaliatory move after the UK regulator banned Chinese broadcaster CGTN from airing there. David Culver joins us now. David, great to have you with us. We have to get the timing straight on this. These events were literally a week apart. And what's that saying? There are no coincidences. But let's let's take set that aside. What are the Chinese saying is the reason for blocking BBC World? Hey there, Julia. Good to be with you as well. Yeah, reciprocity is what seems to be what's playing out. And that's something that we have seen between the US and China over the past year plus now involving the UK and particularly the BBC. So one of the things that the Chinese officials are coming out with is criticism of the type of journalism, as they put it, the BBC has been going forward with. This is the way they word it. I'm gonna read it to you here. They say that the BBC has infringed the principles of truthfulness and impartiality in journalism. What are they talking about? They're talking about two stories in particular. One of them has to do with what is a very sensitive issue here, and that is with the Uyghurs, the ethnic minorities, the Muslims within Xinjiang, the far western region of China. And the BBC has done extensive reporting on that that has angered Chinese officials, much like CNN's reporting has likewise angered Chinese officials whenever we broadcast about that. Uh, they also reported on China's handling and response to COVID-19 or allegations of mishandling. That likewise has not gone over well with Chinese officials. But as you put it, the timing. It comes a week after Ofcom, the British media regulator, decided to withdraw the license for CGTN. That is the state broadcaster, the Chinese state broadcaster done in English that is broadcasted in several other countries, no longer in the UK. So here we are a week later, and now the BBC, no longer on the air here in mainland China, Julia. Yeah, uh, there are no coincidences. But let's talk specifically, David, about what impact this will have. I've been in China a number of times and I've only ever watched BBC World in international hotels. How much access is there really to, to BBC World? And is this perhaps more a story of access in Hong Kong? Right. And, and you're right. It's international hotels and those who will be staying in those hotels. 
that won't have access to BBC World News. Hong Kong likewise following suit, and I think this shows the growing influence that mainland China has had over Hong Kong, especially since we've seen the national security law going into effect in, in July of last year. Hong Kong's public broadcaster will likewise no longer be airing BBC content. I think what we also have to look at is the precedence this might be setting, and that could be impacting news gathering on the ground. So right now this doesn't affect the BBC journalists who are here, but as we've seen with U.S. journalists, including those of us who work for CNN, in recent months we likewise have faced shortened visas. The Chinese have said this is out of reciprocity. This is what the U.S. did to the state media journalist in the U.S., so that's why they're acting this way. As of now, if it continues to then go into the news gathering portion of this and impact those BBC journalists or other British journalists here in mainland China, that I think is where it grows increasingly concerning. And there's never been a more important time to have free flow of information. David, um, very concerning and we'll continue to watch this. In the meantime, I do want to wish you a happy Lunar New Year. Compare and contrast, and oh, I admit thanks, it's Julia. subdued this year, but compared to where you were last year, I remember your reporting vividly. You were in quarantine this time last year. So please tell yeah. me you're going to do and have yeah. done something more fun this time around. I, I think we started the, the quarantine trend, an unfortunate one at that, because we had just left yeah. Wuhan, so it was late January. And you're right, we were in a hotel doing quarantine before it was even the policy. It was our editors out of Hong Kong who said, you're going into quarantine. So that's how we celebrated the last Lunar New Year. This one, fortunately, while I'm far from family, which is unfortunate, mm-hmm. I am close to those who are near and dear here. And, you know, it's a small orbit, but at least they bring fulfillment. So that's how I'm spending it. And of course, with you, I mean, we're we're getting to chat like most people these days. (laughs) And that is virtually. Doesn't get better than that, spending it with me. And also it's Valentine's Day. Do you want to send a Valentine's Day heart to your family back home? Because you are a long way away and they must miss you. Oh, that that would be great. Yeah, especially to to my mom. I know that she would love to feel that. There you go. We like that. David? A pleasure, as Thanks, always, Julia. David Culver there, and to your mother. All right, finally, if you're stuck for a present this Valentine's Day, how about secret recording equipment, spy cameras, or maybe a Morse code machine? It's all up for auction after a museum closed down here in New York. Also under the hammer, a half-ton stone sculpture of Lenin. It could be worth $7,000, but I'm not sure of the shipping costs. Um, all I can say is... Diamonds are a girl's best friend. That's it for the show. Hold the statue. I'm Julia Chesley. Have a safe and happy weekend. And we will see you on Monday. And if you're joining us from Asia, happy Lunar New Year. We'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 